0: CUA is the voice of urology in Canada. Europedia Canada is your resource for education. Visit cua.org.
1: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the last CUA Practice Changing Publication Webinar Series of the Year. Tonight, we are going to show you and to present you recent papers, which we hope will stimulate discussion and may change your practice. First, let me introduce me. My name is Martine Jolivet. I have been a urologist for almost 20 years now, and I'm working at the CHU in Montreal. I have the pleasure tonight to present with Dr. Geneviève Nadeau, whom many of you know well. She works at the CHU of Quebec, Université Laval, and she is the co-chair, leadership chair in women's health education, Université Laval and Côte d'Azur. This event tonight is an accredited group learning activity section one, as defined by the maintenance of certification program of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada and is approved by the Canadian Neurological Association. And you may claim a maximum of one hour of credit for this event. And also a post-test will be available in the coming days and will allow you also to obtain a category three credit. The learning objective tonight is with the using of clinical cases with the latest literature related to functional urology, the participants will be able to change their practice, we hope, on certain aspects in the management of the following pathologies. The stress urinary incontinence, the overactive bladder, the recurrent UTI, the postmenopausal vaginal symptoms, and also the female voiding dysfunction, and maybe a surprise at the end. So now
2: to begin, Jamil. Thank you, Mathilde. So our first case is on stress and continence. So case number one: a 65-year-old healthy female coming to her office complaining of stress and continence. So she's an active lady, but she has to restrict herself from doing sports such as jogging. <laughs> right. Sorry. She wears one thick pad per day, and she has already been doing physio for more than a year, but with no change. So after discussing um, all stress, urinary incontinence options, she asked if having a TVT puts her at higher risk to develop a cancer. The first paper we'll discuss tonight was published last June in the Journal of Urology by a Canadian team from Sunnybrook, University of Toronto, and they performed a very large retrospective cohort study to determine if stress and continence surgery is associated with a higher risk of pelvic malignancies later in life this is especially relevant regarding the significant public concern there's been around mesh used for stress and continence and for pop and one such concern includes the carcinogenic potential for pelvic mesh. so through databases they compared over uh, approximately 75,000 women who underwent an index stress incontinence surgery, either mesh or non mesh, between 2002 and 2015. And those women did not have a prior pelvic malignancy. And they compared them to a control group of over 5 million women, all from Ontario. The patients had a median age of 53 and were followed for 8.5 years. And the primary outcome was the occurrence of any pelvic malignancy. So that included bladder, urethra, vulva, vagina, cervix, uterus, and ovarian. And they found that women who underwent a stress incontinence surgery had a reduced risk of pelvic malignancy compared to controls. So they explained their findings possibly by an unmeasured selection bias rather than a true protective effect since women who have had these types of surgery are, are usually healthy, or they may be incidentally diagnosed in the course of their pre-op evaluation. The authors specifically mentioned in their conclusion that vaginal mesh was not associated with a high risk of pelvic malignancy. And hopefully with this study, we'll be able, we'll be able to reassure our patients uh, and address their, their concerns regarding mesh and cancer. So back to the case, the lady is not sure she wants a procedure and she'd like to know if there are other conservative options she could try, especially when she jogs. So we found this study interesting, since it is the first randomized trial to directly compare two non-surgical intravaginal devices for the treatment of stress incontinence. So we often recommend pessaries for non-surgical options, but there is limited research on it and even less head to a trial. They compare, in this study, they compared the traditional continence pessary to a disposable over-the-counter intra-vaginal continence device, the POISE, the, the, the impressa from POISE. And the Empresa the actually has been FDA approved since 2014. Uh, the primary outcome was patient satisfaction, defined as a response of very much better or much better on the patient global impression of improvement uh, questionnaire after four weeks. So 50 women were randomized one-to-one in two different academic centers. And as we can imagine, there was a high success rate for both devices with no significant difference between groups. For those using the traditional fisserie, 80% liked it, while 75% were happy with the disposable one. Six months later, patients in the disposable device group had higher use of other therapies compared to the traditional fisserie. And as one could expect, there, were, there was no serious adverse events, so it was quite a safe option. One important finding of this study is the fact that most participants reported they had experienced leakage symptoms for over three years before therapy was initiated. So, this indicates that women, or, women are often suffering in silence before attaining even just concerted treatment. Women may be less shy to use an over-the-counter device option, and they may be be more inclined to manage their symptoms on their own. But on the other hand, with a disposable device, there's some drawbacks like the cost and also the fact it's not so environmental friendly. In the same line, we wanted to mention a publication on another disposable over-the-counter device called NoLegs. Uh, So, this is a new device. It's it's soft, flexible. It's made of silicone, and it's a one size fits all history. And obviously, this is a very small study since it was a feasibility study. So, 26 women tried it. They all had mild leakage with a one hour pad test under 100 grams. And 80% of them were improved and almost dry with it so obviously this is very preliminary data but also very low risk so potentially a future option that we may have to offer our patients eventually so back to the case the lady returns to your office a few years later and she'd like to try bulking agent, bu- bulking agent injection so we'd like to poll to call the audience and to know if you perform bulking agent injections currently in your practice Okay,
0: so we see that actually the majority.
2: Okay, so 64% of participants do not perform bulking agent injections, while 36 perform it. All right. So, with bulking agents, we want to know how we should define success and what percentage of cure we should quote our patient. Uh, for the bulking and also what type of complications and is it a, mostly is it a durable option we all know with the increased awareness the negative media attention and the warnings surrounding TVDs, uh, bulking agents have been gaining renewed interest as a minimally invasive alternative and in this systematic review that was published this year in the neuro euro euronas um, they conducted they, they gathered fifty Articles they follow the PRISMA guidelines for the systematic reviews, and we'll focus our interest mostly on the two most commonly used so, the polyacrylamide hydrogel or vulcanid and the PDMSO macroplastic. Although the last one, macroplastic, is not available anymore in Canada. Oh, and also there's a, a new one, and it was worth mentioning uh, there's a silicone gel. That is now that has been available in Europe since 2012. The gel that polymerizes when it's injected, it's called Urolastic, and it's not injected intraurethrally but periurethrally. So this is level four evidence uh, for the polyacrylamide hydrogel uh, in There were 17 papers, and they reported overall a short-term success rate of 30 to 9%. And for two studies, there was a long-term success rate up to 42 to 70%, and one, one study even had data up to eight years. Um, and there was also an interesting randomized trial comparing TDT to polyacrylamide hydrogel. Uh, this included more than 200 patients, so 100 patients in each arm. And Volcomid was found to be inferior to TBT with patient satisfaction scores of 60% for volcamid for and 95% for the TBT. And for the objective measure, the negative stress test with Volcomid at one year was 66% versus 95% at 12 months overall most studies reported that the majority of bulking agents are safe with minor uh, adverse events like TTI or de novo urgency the serious adverse event that we're uh, more afraid of is erosion and so there were two cases reported for macroplastic no case reported for bulk amid and as I mentioned, a new agent which seemed initially interesting—the one that from Europe, the Eurolastic—but there was been one study with a, an erosion rate as high as twenty-five percent. So probably unlikely that we'll see it uh, in the market in Canada. Um, for regarding bulkamine, the polyacrylamide hydrogel, there is no erosion, but there can be. There are some complications such as. Rupture of injection sites that were reported, but all were treated conservatively with no reported erosion and follow up. There was also another study that reported that women treated, like women treated with, um, by a high volume surgeon or in a high volume department, had an increased chance of occurring a lower risk of hospital uh, post op complication. So they defined a high-volume surgeon by performing, having performed over 75 urethral bulking injections over the period and a, a high-volume department over 15 procedures per year. So still on the topic of stress and continence, but with a slightly different scenario, so I called it Case 1B, a 58-year-old lady is presenting to your office with significant stress and continence, having to use four pads per day. She has a BMI of 42, and her leakage stops her from starting a fitness program as suggested by her GP. She has already been doing physio without improvement, and she's sent to your office for a consultation to try to find a definitive treatment for stress incontinence, and she's really discouraged. So this is a meta-analysis, including 33 studies with over 2,600 patients who underwent weight loss through either bariatric surgery or behavioral modifications, and they looked at its impact on incontinence. And it was interesting to note that obese women have a twofold increase, increase incidence of stress incontinence and threefold risk of urgency incontinence. So as one would expect, across all studies, Weight loss was observed to be beneficial in improving urinary incontinence. Uh, more, more specifically, and you can see it on the right for the forest plots illustrated on the top, the bariatric surgery lay, led to greater reduction in BMI and was also associated with greater improvements in stress incontinence compared to behavioral weight loss interventions only that we see at the bottom at the bottom right. So the implications of these results is that weight loss appears to be an effective treatment for incontinence management in women with obesity, and we should consult our patients accordingly. Even though sometimes it might feel a little bit difficult or delicate to address, but as physicians and health promoters, it's our role, especially with all the additional health benefits weight loss will provide or bar- from bariatric surgery, such as reduction or cure sometimes even with diabetes hypertension and decreased mortality and in the same going in the same direction with the a small prospective cohort of 41 patients uh, at 1 year after bar- bariatric surgery patients went from you can see it on the graph the the yellow line so at 1 year patients went from a mean bmi of 45 to a mean bmi of 32 and they all improved their incontinence over a year with their their weight loss going from two pads per day on average to zero pad per day for most of them. And the proportion of patients using any number of pads decreased from 93% to 9.8% at 12 months. And uh, in the end, only 5% of them were still having moderate to severe leakage at 12 months. So probably then uh, requiring or asking for an intervention. And again, like this topic has been addressed in a couple of other papers, and it has also been included as a recommendation in the most recent NICE guidelines and EAU guidelines on urinary incontinence, which recommend that women with a BMI of thirty and above should consider weight loss prior consideration for incontinence surgery. So we'll move uh, we'll we'll move forward with case
0: number two and Martin. So
2: I will
1: now present to you the recent publication on OAB for the elderly. So the, the second case is a woman of 79 years old. She had symptoms of OAB and urgency, ur, urinary incontinence for a lot of years. She's going 12 times during the day and three times during the night. She has frank urgency and more than four urinary incontinence per day. She's wearing three pads during the daytime, and unfortunately now, and that is the reason why she uh, comes to see you, she has one diaper during the nighttime. She has very, very minimal stress urinary incontinence, no pain, never history of UTI, and never had hemorrhagia. So her doctor made a referral because they didn't feel comfortable to prescribe anticholinergic medication for her. So, we have two papers for that tonight, and the first and two Canadian papers. So, very happy about that. So, the first one is a, a review article uh, from Dr. Uh, Blaine Welk and his colleague uh, about uh, all the studies that he can find for cognitive uh, changes with uh, EM medication. So, as you know, uh, all the researchers for all this year were very concerned about the administration of AM, especially for the elderly. So this has led to uh, randomize a lot of studies assessing the effect of OAB medication on cognition. So firstly, so they made their review all and they found only two short-term RCT and with nine of them that were sponsored by industry. So, most of, most of the studies were very short, as you know, four weeks and less. And they were uh, with the social validated neuropsychology tests that evaluated different cognitive areas, including memories, and tension and executive functioning. And on the nine and 12 that they study, that they were with pharmaceutical school Company, and uh, they find Surprisingly, that it was only the oxybutynin that was associated with the cognitive impairment and not the other one. So they continue their work and they find only three long term clinical studies. And for long term, we mean between six months and one year on OEB and Timuscarinic. And they study all the medication and the effects on um, cognitive impairment. They used for that, uh, most of the time, the MMSE and for one of them, the MOCA. So, uh, also, it was conflicting results and it was limited by methodological issues. Firstly, uh, most of them was ad hoc data. That means that it was older adults with normal cognition at the beginning of the study without any neurological disease. Also, uh, as you know, and it's the same for the study, the compliance was quite poor and uh, a lot of patients was not fully followed, sorry, uh, until the end of the year. And furthermore, the NMSC score is not the, the better one to assess the community uh, uh, impairment that you can have with MM uh, medication. The MOCA from Montreal is more accurate and only one of the three studies was with it. So for this part of their uh, review, they didn't have, unfortunately, uh, good results. So at the end, they uh, they found seven large observational studies. Most of them was were uh, retrospective. And for every one, they uh, had a lot of OAM medication. And for these, they found that it was around 20 percent of an increased relative risk of dementia associated with the medication but the composing and the reverse causality cannot be ruled out so at their conclusion they say that all study must be interpreted in the context of potential compounding factor as i mentioned and also that maybe the prodromal urinary symptom associated with the early stage of dementia leads to an increase of OAB medication for this kind of patient record that the use of OAB medication causing dementia but they made they, so we don't know the ticking of their eyes so at the end they have a beautiful warning box that you can use when you see the patient and uh, we uh, recommend uh, that it can be a uh, good uh, for your practice so at the beginning, so to consider the normal condition less than 65 years old, the normal condition over 65 years old, and after that, to see the potential at-risk group and uh, uh, to use the beta agonists uh, as an initial oral medication therapy when it's appropriate for the patient to avoid the butin in most of the cases. To consider the anticholinergic that they are safer and to consider also other alternative treatment for the patient and not say that uh, because they are a little bit too uh, old, they cannot have medication. So, on the last slide, sorry for the arrows. So, consider uh, also to have uh, other uh, treatment that they can offer to the patient, like neuromodulation or for example, Botox. And, sorry about that. So the last paper was published in last November in the European Urological Focus, and uh, and it was uh, uh, with the team with Dr. Hirschhorn. And the aim of it was to estimate the association of AM drug exposure and compare it to myribogram and the incidence of dementia. So, it was quite a large study made in Ontario with uh, more than 11,000 patients, more than 66 years old, with a new diagnosis of dementia between 2010 and 2017, and compared with uh, almost 30,000 patients, age and sex match control without dementia derived from the general population. And the odd ratio was to see, for incidental dementia and uh, to, it was adjusted for the health uh, characteristic. So, in this study, it was uh, uh, demonstrated that solifinacin and direfinacin, when it was used prior six months before the uh, diagnosis of incident dementia was uh, more important when compared to those receiving myerbergon and the odds ratio was 1.25. 24, sorry. And in the six months to one year prior to the diagnosis, when people received donepezil, dyerifinacin, solterodine, and stezolpericin, it was associated with an increased odds of incident dementia compared with all the ones who received myriburagin. And surprisingly, no effects was seen with oxybutynin or trostia. So you can see here, so it was very close, to the the odd ratio uh, metal, but uh, it was uh, significant for the uh, denescent solidnescent phaseor when it was not because it crossed the line for oxy and and it was good also to be uh, more in uh, more influence on dementia for the T so the summary was that in a large Canadian court and I think that it's the largest that I saw uh, and that I read uh, the Patient who developed dementia after starting an overactive medication uh, was m- more important than the one who's taking EM medication if we compare with the one who's taking myabergran. So, also, what is the chicken? What is the egg? We don't know. But I think that we have to be cautious and to continue to uh, take care when we see this kind of patient.
2: Okay, thank you. So, moving yes, on to yes, Thanks. So mo- moving on to case number 3 on UTIs. So a 65-year-old woman uh, who experienced four uncomplicated UTIs in 2021, all were typical symptoms and proven. She was treated with various courses of antibiotics, so nitro, Bactrim, Fosfo. She's discouraged and would like a solution to prevent recurrent tract infections. Other than topical estrogen therapy, which regimen for continuous prophylaxis would you prescribe her? This is a very interesting Dutch study that retrospectively looked at over 1,800 patients, uh, the majority being postmenopausal woman and they were treated on continuous prophylaxis for a median follow-up of 90 days with either 50 mg or 100 mg of nitrofurentin. Uh, the baseline characteristics were similar for both groups and their results showed that patients on both 100 mg and 50 mg nitro developed UTI and pyelonephritis in similar proportions. So in terms of efficacy to prevent QTIs, there seems to be a equivalence between both dosages. However, there was an increased risk, uh, increased hazard for clinically relevant pulmonary adverse events with the use of 100 milligram compared to 50 milligram for a nitro. And this was, but this was mostly mild and self, self-limited pulmonary adverse events like cough, dyspnea, shortness of breath. Was not always severe pulmonary toxicity like um, pulmonary fibrosis per se, but still they estimated that the number needed to prevent one pulmonary event by using a daily dose of 50 milligram instead of a 100 milligram nitrofurantoin was 20 patients. So they recommended to favor use of 50 milligram for daily prophylaxis. So back to the case, sometimes. Uh she was treated for a uti but her culture was negative she has heard about private labs performing more accurate current culture to help better treat utis and she's inquiring what's your opinion and if it's worth trying it next time so this paper from the journal of urology is really fresh fresh from the press published uh, this november and it is clinically relevant because of the increasing beliefs of patient and advocacy groups that negative cultures miss significant bacteria sometimes. So this is a randomized trial using two different urine culture techniques to compare UTI's self-reported symptom resolution at seven to 10 days in 225 women. So there was the standard, the standard culture and the expanded culture. And the expanded culture can be per- performed in any clinical microbiology lab, but it is more labor and time intensive than the standard culture because it requires to be plated on multiple media and the specimens need to be incubated for twice as long. But it will detect additional microbes in over 90% of urines deemed no growth by standard culture, and most of them were non-coli pathogen and normal flora this is a well-conceived rct that shows that uh, both culture methods had similar proportions of positive cultures similar rates of antibiotic cues as well as similar rates of uti symptom resolution for the subset of women that had predominantly non-e-coli on their culture there was a trend toward more symptom resolution in the extended culture arm. Compared to the standard culture with a p of 0.08, but overall this is reassuring, since for the majority of patients standard culture was sufficient, and advanced testing was not indicated. Especially when, like when we see that now molecular based tests are being marketed for pa- to, to our patients to us. Um, so that means probably that those we like for now standard culture are still satisfying, and with the same the similar clinical outcomes between both types of culture. I should mention though that the culture were all performed this study by catheter rather than midstream, so this is like like we could say this is not uh, exactly mm-hmm. applicable to our practice. And as mentioned by Dr. Nicole in the editorial comment, the question to the clinical value of sophisticated bacterial strategies still remains to be answered. And back to
0: you, Martin, with the last couple of studies. Perfect. So uh, to complete
1: some uh, various with a lot of subject communication that we found interesting in the event. So, the first one, and I have maybe a bias for something that's from a, coming a little bit uh, from Canada and from uh, uh, Quebec particularly. So, uh, the first one is the effect of fractional carbon dioxide laser versus sham treatment on symptom severity in women with postmenopausal vaginal symptoms. It was published uh, in October in JAMA and was presented our, at our uh, Quebec conference uh, last month. So it's uh, 85 persons, so ladies, uh, and it was about one to one, and they have uh, for for 43 of them, the laser treatment, and for the rest, the sham treatment. And after 12 months, so it's quite a long study, uh, the treatment with laser was compared with sham treatment for two, Mm -hmm. uh, with two, uh, two, the first one, the first one is the visual analog scale, And the other one is the uh, overall symptom severity questionnaire with the vulvovaginal symptoms questionnaire score. So at the end, neither one was uh, different statistically. That means that uh, no improvement with the laser after uh, treatment for 12 months. So, uh, I think we thought it was interesting because of all the patients that we see uh, that they' asking for uh, the laser treatment in our clinic, and uh, some of you maybe have begun to offer it, so I think that we still need more studies. So another uh, very interesting uh, paper it's not it's, uh, it's a consensus document. Uh, published in the British Journal Urology International, and it's the consensus from the British Association of Urological Surgeons for the Management of Female Voiding Dysfunction. So this review, uh, it's uh, a useful paper because it's quite rare that we see uh, data about that, and they make very, a big job to have uh, everything that was published in the ten last year. Uh, And uh, as you can see, uh, it remains a challenge for the bladder outlet obstruction for the females, for the diagnosis and the treatment part. So on this paper, uh, I'll show you here with the, the block and on the other one with the algorithm that they are very uh, nice uh, written and quite simple because it's not a very uh, simple subject. And uh, what I want to show you that it's uh, one of the rare um, cases for which neurodynamic uh, studies still play a key role. And also for the majority of the patients, we can continue to see them uh, in our local unit. and the one that is a little bit more complicated when we think that they may, maybe need a diversion, also um, like a metropanoff or maybe a hyaluronic conduit, they have to be uh, refer, referral in tertiary units, but uh, it's a useful uh, tool that you can use in your clinic when you have a bladder outlet obstruction in females. So, the last one, the last case before the discussion that we will do with you, it's uh, not a uh, female urology, but female in urology. So um, I have a colleague that is a new female urologist in a second year of practice, uh, and it's uh, it's not it's not true. But uh, uh, for the case, she asking me uh, if uh, I noticed uh, the same as her, that she receiving mostly medical, non-surgical referrals. So does a surgeon's sex influence the number and size of reference Received from physicians. So, uh, last month in November, uh, another paper—paper, paper, uh, sorry—in the JAMA was published, and it was also a Canadian uh, paper from uh, Dr. Baxter and Dr. Dosa from St. Michael, and uh, they published a cross-sectional study of nearly 40 million referrals to surgeons in Ontario between 1997 and 2018, and uh, in their paper, female surgeons less commonly receive procedural referral than male surgeons, 25% compared to 33%. The male surgeon account for 77% of all surgeons in Ontario, but received 87% of the referral for male physicians and 79% for the female physician, and the difference was uh, associated more with the physical, physical choice rather than with the difference of the type of surgeon or the patient characteristic. So, for health diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, the male physician may have maybe some bias towards same-sex referral, and uh, without that, this event engine, female surgeons, the disparity is not narrowing over time. That means not in the career of a female surgeon, but since 1997, they didn't see they didn't see change in their papal between the the referrals in 1997 and the last one in 2018. So it leads to a lower volume and fewer operative referral to female surgeon, and is associated with maybe not maybe sex-based inequities in medicine and uh, for the discussion uh, also in the drama almost in the same time one week after a resident uh, in the augusta uh, made the i think it's a constructive uh, comment that uh, probably it's uh, not the woman or the system that is broken but it's more systemic issue and that so we can work together, and I think that the Canadian Association is a leader for that, because we almost half half when uh, when we see for everything that is made uh, on the webinar, on the on the conference, etc. And uh, uh, we can begin to do uh, probably research that will shift from descriptive what happened in the last year and doing more uh, System-based intervention to see the effectiveness on what we can do to change the the situation.
0: jean to you.
2: Thanks, Maxine. So we're a little bit early, but this will give uh, more time for discussion, I guess. So our take-home messages. From the papers we've presented tonight is that vaginal mesh as a permanent implant is not associated with a higher risk of pelvic malignancy that we should consider for a woman with a bmi of 35 and above uh, like weight loss should be considered prior to offer an inc- incontinent surgery and we should potentially refer them for a consideration of a bar- bariatric surgery that anticholinergics may have an increased risk of cognitive impairment compared with those taking mirabegron uh, for daily prophylaxis. 50 mg nitroglycerin for recurrent to prevent recurrent CPIs appears to provide an advantageous risk benefit ratio compared to a 100 mg nitro. That CO2 laser did not significantly improve postmenopausal vaginal symptoms compared to sham treatment and that fewer operative referrals to female surgeons are associated with sex-based inequities in medicine. So now it's time for a discussion. So please feel free to ask any questions in the chat. And so I'll
0: start looking at it. And there was one for your case? case
2: yeah (laughs) yeah go ahead so i'll answer
1: you i will try to answer
2: okay i'll I'll read it and we will try to to answer it so about the case number two for the study published by dr hirshorn dr nam um they did consider indication bias for example we can think that patients at higher risk of being diagnosed with dementia had an increased risk of being prescribed and other than oxybutynin. What's your opinion about that? Yeah, so
1: it was a comment uh, effectively on the uh, on this study. And uh, in Canada, for the last part of the study, the 10 last year, uh, most of the patients didn't receive oxybutynin when they are fragile and early. So probably uh, the bias is that we cannot see any effects of dementia because the patients, for most of them, uh, they didn't receive oxygen for the last 10 years. So it was difficult for the beginning of the study because uh, it was almost uh, 20 years that was up there. But uh, now we know that the mortality, not only the incidence of dementia is uh, more important when people receive a non-selective oxygen, so, probably in Canada, uh, we take uh, that in uh, consideration when we begin medication for people. And I was surprised to see that the, for the selective medication for AAB, they still have probably 23% of incidence of new dementia. But is it because they come with uh, symptoms of urinary uh, overactive bladder that can be part of the dementia? So this part we don't know and I think it may it's going to be very interesting to begin to do uh, maybe in neurology the mocha when we see them and to be more aware that that it can be one of the symptoms of their fragility and ask more for geriatric consultation
2: yeah, asking for like we had this discussion asking for a geriatrics consultation is a really good point and I really like the commentary uh, in Dr. Wells study about the fact that sometimes it's really prodromal, the urinary, yeah. the, the yeah. OAD. and we see that very often in our in our practice as well. Yeah, sometimes so, I'm not surprised three months after
1: to see that to see oh my god, yes, she had a new diagnosis. but. oh quiet it was a little bit bizarre when she asked she answered the answer uh, she answered the question so maybe just be aware and to be cautious i think it was the conclusion of the two studies and
2: any memory issues like we can ask the patients or the person with the with him um there was a question that i'm not sure i understand like can maybe you'll help me matson can you comment about duration of treatment that you are comfortable giving a try before more costly treatment options. so for just the, that. Yeah, for so the I'm design. assuming I, that's what I'm assuming. I'm not sure. I was trying to want, like figure out for which case, but I, I'm assuming it's for OEB pills.
1: Yeah, uh, most of the time uh, I will lay uh, will wait a little bit less longer. So um, I will try if it's possible not to give uh, MS AM medication to try with the myrvogram and uh, after maybe four four to six months when they change their habits when they try to have uh, maybe physio if they can afford it and if the the lady because tonight it's female urology but if the lady is uh, willing i will offer her uh, more rapidly the botox a small dosage uh, 50 to 100. when they are you know like the lady that we have quite desperate and they are active, they don't want to wear diapers. They don't have a lot of time to wait. they going to be on the waiting list for one and a half year to wait.
2: I agree. And like, do you always, and we also had this discussion, but do you always do a eurodynamic study prior to offering Botox? For the old lady? For the elderly? Not
1: always. It's not recommended. I I want to be sure that they are able to empty their bladder. I want to be sure that the stress incontinence is not so much important. I do the voiding calendar. I do the PBR. uh, i be sure that they don't have, uh, uh, that it's not a a symptoms of uh, infection, if they have bacteria. But after that, uh, I'm doing quite uh, rapidly the Botox. More than I used to, maybe five years ago, because uh, of the burden of the ms and uh, we don't have a lot of medication other than the beta 3 for now and i would like to have maybe some other options and uh, i told that in the warning box to see uh, maybe you know uh, the tibial uh, simulation and something else but for now it can be a good option to offer them the botox
2: and when do you still use
0: oxybutynin when oxy yeah uh yeah
1: okay i i think i'm continue to use it Uh, honestly i don't have a lot of patients taking it i have some uh, pediatric patients that's still using them using it i have some Pina patient that they tolerated, and I can titrate titrate the medication more than the 20-30. But uh, for my female
0: lady, the woman that I see in clinic, almost never. Do you prescribe it, Sandhya? Yes.
2: Uh, I don't prescribe it. Some neuro patients, neurogenic patients that are on it, and I don't do any, I don't have any pediatric patients, um, or very occasionally, very rarely, but sometimes like for on-demand, for patients when they just need a a quick short duration of action for when you're going out or even like, I tend to, I will usually prescribe some or physioterolene even yeah. if they're supposed to be long-term rather than Oxy I should say, but. Yeah. Like,
0: so you have very a question, you have a question two patients for a year. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. So like me, you have a question about the, uh, recurrent UTI. Um, I assume that they have been found to have normally functional ureteric tract, and that voiding is complete. When women have recurrent UTI, do you do
0: like what is your uh, small uh, management that you do you doing for error? For
2: recurrent UTIs, definitely yeah. I check for black scan uh, for the post void residual, and at any age, even if in there, even if they're in their 20s, sometimes they could have winding dysfunction and not void properly, like by straining or crissing or, so definitely want to check that and, but I I guess like, I assume that they have been found to have normally functioning urinary tract. Uh, This was, if you're talking about the Dutch study, comparing the 50 to 100 milligram nitro, uh, this was a retrospective study uh of continuous prophylaxis prescribed by gps it was interesting because it was a very large cohort but uh, it wasn't patients followed by urologists so um from what i like what i'm looking at the paper right now there was no no like some of them had diabetes uh, a small percentage had renal or urologic disorders uh like 18 three percent had immunosuppressive states but like most of them it was just like general population per se it was very interesting though to try to minimize the risk of pulmonary even pulmonary complications with the same efficacy but with a smaller dose of nitrofurantoin. so probably we should aim toward using a 50 milligram uh, at the time rather than 100 milligrams And regarding
0: the nolex,
2: yeah,
0: yeah, Yeah, the nolex.
2: I mean, it's a very small study, very preliminary, but interesting to have another option maybe to offer. And I've seen that they've actually uh, registered the trademark in Canada. So who knows if it's gonna come anytime? I I don't know. Like this is really preliminary, but they've registered the trademark nolex in Canada so it's made of silicone it's a one-size-fits-all it has a hard glass shape and it's it has a string um so patient will just put it inside and it's supposed to be dynamic and to sort of adjust and i'm not sure exactly how it works even though i've read the paragraph twice but it's supposed to like to utilize the inc- like the intra pressure when the patients exercise last sneeze, cough. So this transient increase in pressure is supposed like will create like will apply to the like the knowledge will apply apply and increase the pressure on the urethra. So that was and it's supposed to be not too costly. They said that it depends also on the, the on the consumer demand, but Hopefully it should cost probably $1.5 per device. So 1.5? pretty much. Yeah.
0: $1.5 one 5 and it's
2: uh, Oh god. It's a disposable. It's a yeah. disposable one. So obviously if like you use it every day for a month, it becomes costly but uh, if it's just occasionally for run or anything. And I find like, there's also the Contiform test 3 that I offer my patients, which is reusable and also made of silicone. And uh, we've just completed uh, a, a study for patient satisfaction uh, at LAVAL. So I have a cohort of 40 patients. And so far, it's, it's like some patients really like it, they find it, marvelous when they go for a tug or something like that it's always an issue of like the shape shape of the vagina and if it's comfortable but they found it pretty tricky to insert and to pull Uh, it took a couple of tries before patients became comfortable using it but for some of them it worked so i would say probably 50 50 so i always tell patients like who knows? Maybe you'll prefer the, the poise, the impressa from poise or the contiform, and maybe eventually the Nolix. And uh, of course, I discuss all the other st- like stress and incontinence options, like the bulking agents, the retropubic slings, and the PDF. And now the Birch okay, couple suspension as well, even though there's not as high results, but sometimes I refer them to your gynae for a laparoscopy
1: yeah i think that we need more options to be conservative and some that they are surgical options for incontinence and things will continue probably to have a lot of device and hopefully something that we can be uh for the environment I, it's a little bit bizarre that snow leaks it's not if it's in silicone it's
0: it's bizarre so, that's what it's a uh, disposable Yeah. Uh, yeah if
1: it's in silicone so we have to think about that like the diapers it's not good for the environment so so i think that we are finished we still have yes. an important uh, last slide
0: so <laughs> thank everybody who've
1: been there uh, tonight uh, we wish you a good uh, month of december and happy holidays we still have some activity that we uh, that you will have with the cua until the rest of the year and i um, give the pot and for now the Canadian uh, the ads uh, they win tonight but I give the pot to Jean for the end.
2: So you'll just remind you that uh, you'll receive a link in your email shortly to com- please complete the webinar evaluation from tonight and you'll get also your certificate of participation in this uh, in this email. Thank you very much Martin and thanks everyone for attending and thanks for your comment and happy holidays,
0: stay safe.
2: Bye-bye.